This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. When they started, Wired Magazine did the weirdest thing a tech magazine could do. They picked a patron saint. Was Marshall McLuhan a digital prophet? It's device and virtue. Hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. Hey, Adam, today's episode is about my favorite media theorist. <laughs> it was inevitable. <laughs> wait, you're not saying you're not no. saying it. You're not. You're, you're, do you know? You're not. What, who, wait, yeah. who's your ma- favorite media theorist? Uh, come on. Come on. We all know who your favorite media theorist is, Chris. Come on say the name marshall mcluhan oh that's right i'm so glad you know me (laughs) yeah today we have an interview with a guy named nick rapatrizone he's an editor and wrote a new book on marshall mcluhan but not just him who by the way if you remember was a professor that back in like radio days pretty much predicted the internet which is why i love right right and he coined the term global village yes but also he became a really strong christian in his mid-20s and necropatrizone has a whole new book about this and so the book is called digital communion marshall McLuhan's spiritual vision for a virtual age which sounds fascinating Because he's eerily prescient. I think you're going to love this interview, diving back into this. I know you've read some McLuhan, and I've read a lot of McLuhan, but I think almost everyone should be interested in what he's doing. I mean, we talk about Old Testament prophets being these people that spoke to culture and spoke these very strong— they could see things that other people couldn't see, right? And then they were trying to write this down, going like, you guys are all missing it. Marshall McLuhan was sort of like that, but about the internet. He was looking at early Mm. radio, early TV, Mm. and saying, this stuff is going to change everything. The electronic age is going to change all of us. And people were sort of into it, actually. Unlike the Old Testament prophets, he got really popular back in like the 70s. You know, like he would be on TV. He was in a bunch of magazines. But no one really got what he was saying. (laughs) Right, right. People were actually confused. They found him fascinating, but they're like, what are you talking about? talking about a lot like a prophet we don't really get what you're saying maybe we like it maybe we don't but we're kind of confused yeah exactly so i think nick does a really good job of telling us about why he was really important and how a christian back in the 60s looking at technology could affect us as christians today great let's dive in and listen to it well i'm here with author nick Wapatrizone. nick is the editor at image journal and the catholic Harold and has a new book entitled Digital Communion, Marshall McLuhan's Spiritual Vision for a Virtual Age. Nice to have you, Nick. Welcome. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. 
I love that you are writing on Marshall McLuhan, who's one of my favorites. He, you know, he was a professor in the 1960s that got sort of really famous at that time, didn't he? He was writing on communications. Tell us a little bit about him. I know our listeners know about him because I mentioned him too much, says Adam. However, (laughs) give us a little bit of basic background for people who don't remember who he was. Well, I'm happy that you're evangelizing for McLuhan. (laughs) I'm certainly a believer that he needs to be read more often. He was He was a professor of literature by training and by practice. And a few years into his teaching, working with undergraduates, he realized that he could communicate with younger students, college undergrads, better by talking about other kinds of texts than perhaps, you know, Shakespearean works or poetry. So he started to work with print advertising and almost do like what we would consider now like a close reading of a print ad. And his first book, The Mechanical Bride, which was published in 1951, is basically a collection of those close readings. And it's a fun book. I've used it with my own students of that age, high school and college. But he soon realized that it was an outdated medium for him, that he switched to TV. The print advertisements were an outdated medium. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So he was shifting from the mechanical world, as he called it, to the electric or the electronic. Yeah, because TV is really hitting its stride. Absolutely right. Yes, it's a medium that is in everyone's house. And there's a communal aspect to it because a TV would be in a central place in the home where, you know, it's not like now, perhaps, where we have separate rooms where, you know, people go watch like their surround sound TV experience (laughs) or movies. (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, this is a place where everyone's going to hear it. Everyone's going to see it. And he realized that that was the ultimate medium for him to encounter. So he began a life's work of looking at the electronic world and how it creates environments that affect us. He became really famous. People have heard some of his most popular slogans, like Mm -hmm. the global village. Sometimes people hear, or the medium is the message. You know, people will know that one. Mm -hmm. But in your book, I don't think I realized how famous he got. He was you know, Esquire, Vogue, Time, Fortune, Life, Newsweek. Everyone interviewed him. And he was on TV, like, constantly. He was on the Today Show multiple times, right? Yeah. He was as popular of a public intellectual as we've ever known. And it was, as you mentioned, it was cross-genre, cross-medium for him. You know, seeing his face, like, in a a Vogue splash with then There's an interview (laughs) with him in the issue, and then there's four pages of him just kind of pontificating and imagining it now is almost impossible, like an intellectual of that sort of stature. So you're right. He was everywhere that someone could be. And he was very much part of the mass media consciousness in a way that I don't think we have perhaps today. Why do you think folks at that time, and then that affects us probably now as we get there, but why do you think the folks at that time were that interested? And I mean, he was a professor. He was a professor with, he had a very interesting sense of humor. He saw language as a form of play. You look at him and you imagine he's a kind of guy, Cambridge PhD, university professor who takes himself too seriously, but the opposite was really true, that he he was sort of a like a jester of sorts, and then he saw language as poetry and play, and he would crack jokes, and he would go off on these kind of very meditative discussions. In that time period, people appreciated the counterculture nature of him, and the younger generation loved him, and that's what you know, really, if you capture the interest of the younger generation back then or now, you've won in terms of getting your message out. And that's how he was able to do it. 
And it seemed like he was very much speaking to what people were thinking about in a big media shift, television, the electronic age. I don't actually recall whether he'd use electric or electronic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he would switch between the two. And he, you're right that okay. he would use the word electric, which I actually kind of like. There's a certain tactile nature to it that I don't yeah, feel with the right. word electronic. <laughs> Well, these days, you know, when I think of media history, I distinguish between sort of electric, like the Telegraph or Alexander Graham Bell versus the broadcast era of radio and TV. But he was really sort of using that language to describe the the radio TV era. Yeah, he was interested in any media that he thought created a new environment. So he was very interested in how Perhaps, you know, us speaking now, us watching someone on a Zoom broadcast, us watching someone on television, not merely the content that is being promoted or presented, but the mindset in which we receive that information and how we, you know, our affect, our presentation, our thoughts. So he was very much a prophet. That's why people really call him prophet of the media age, because he was thinking about those environmental concerns while people were still getting used to what a TV was. When I think profit is the word I want to latch on to as we talk about this. I mean, so with your new book, which is great, Marshall McLuhan's Spiritual Vision for a Virtual Age, you are talking a lot about his Christian faith in this book. Right. And I want to ask you all about that. But people use the word prophet for him. I don't know when that first started. You might even could tell me, but I do know famously Wired Magazine said, oh, we have a saint, a patron saint, a sort of the saint prophet language. And Marshall McLuhan, this old professor, is our patron saint, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was on the masthead. I don't know if he's still there, but he was on the masthead for the first few issues. You know, he's actually listed there, Marshall McLuhan. And you're right that the early founding editors of Wired, included in that would be Kevin Kelly, were either Christians or lapsed Catholics. Like There was a very much a Christian milieu in that early days of Wired. That was fascinating to me. And we are writing about Kevin Kelly having a Christian background, who is one of the original editor of Wired magazine. But yeah, let me ask you about McLuhan's Christian background. McLuhan becomes a convert to Christianity, he says. Tell me about what happened and what influenced McLuhan to become a Christian. Yeah. So he was raised in a Protestant tradition. His mother was a little more pious than his father, but his son described it as like a loose Protestantism. Okay, some um, really. Bapt- a Baptist church in Canada, it seemed like I exactly. saw, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So he went away to, to Cambridge. He would call himself a Christian, but not perhaps like a practicing or sort of like a deeply pious kind of person. Sure. So while he's at Cambridge, he's reading Gerard Manley Hopkins, who was a 19th century Jesuit priest who was a convert as well to Catholicism. And Hopkins was a brilliant poet. McLuhan started reading his poetry and and was fascinated by it. He was also listening to G.K. Chesterton. Yes, right. And he was reading James Joyce, who is probably the most famous lapsed Catholic, meaning like a Catholic (laughs) who doesn't really practice but still identifies as Catholic in history. Okay, I see. Sure. Yeah. So McLuhan is really having this kind of buffet of Catholic writers. And what he's realizing is that the faith that he grew up with wasn't intellectually adjacent or anchored, at least in the Mm. way it was presented to him. Mm. But the Catholic faith that he was introduced to was. Mm. It was both pious and intellectual, and it offered him a way to be what he was, which was a super smart person, 
yeah. but also, you know, be attracted to belief and God. Yeah. G.K. Chesterton, in the, and I didn't know about Hopkins, who you wrote about, mm-hmm. but I did know he was influenced by Chesterton. And Chesterton was, right? Sort of this brilliant, witty, almost probing. People like mm-hmm. to say McLuhan did, he liked to say he did probing things with his language. But while Chesterton was maybe more story-oriented, he sort of poked at things and was fast and interesting and talked about culture just as much as faith. Yeah, and you're right. And the fact that he had a radio show was a way for McLuhan to encounter that language close to the way in which McLuhan himself would become very common on the radio, on TV, in various forms of media. I was noticing in your book that you were talking about a lot of McLuhan's influences like James Joyce or or the poet Yeats. And, Mm. you know, people say McLuhan can be very hard to read right when you pick him up. And I was just telling you, you know, when I first picked up the medium as the message, his sort of later, I think it's or understanding media rather. So 1961, it sounds Mm. right to me. You know, when I first read, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll just read this McLuhan book. It was hard. It was just confusing. You're reading sentences that sound like nonsense. You like stop and have to. And I was a fat reader. I'm sort of smart. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening on this. You know, you'd flip a page and he's talking about, you know, axes and wheels and sound and light and these things that fly at you. You spent a lot of time explaining that McLuhan really liked uh, James Joyce. And if everyone's read James Joyce, that's Mm -hmm. even crazier. (laughs) It feels feels like you're in a room of shattered word glass that just fell all over you, right? You don't know what happened. Like a Picasso. It's like reading a cubist Picasso, you Mm -hmm. know, where you see all these perspectives at once. And I think you have a background in poetry, so I'm curious Mm -hmm. about this. Do you like McLuhan's style, the way he wrote? I love it. I love it. It's a mosaic. I think the imagistic, you know, the artistic parallels of your drawing make sense because it is a mosaic style. And I actually think for someone reading him in 2022, you know, we're better prepared to encounter text that works in the way that he approached it than perhaps someone of his generation or time. And we being people who live in a digital world, don't think of linearity of communication in the same way. When I even think of, you know, scrolling through Twitter, following hyperlinks, we're willing to jump in ways intellectually that people didn't know what to do with in his time, you know? So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Back in the day, I wrote on the way that the form of the book for scripture and sort of a leather-bound King James mm-hmm. version, uh, which, of course, is not the, even how the the church for the history of the church has the Bible. Augustine certainly doesn't even have all the books like that, and certainly not in that order at that time. But, you know, sort of the way that we think about the Bible like that was very different from later when we were scrolling through a Facebook feed and you have a cat and then a Bible verse, mm-hmm. uh, right? Very non-linear, as it sounds like right. you say, or a mosaic. Yeah. And I mean, with the way I think of the New Testament, you know, thinking about the synoptic gospels thinking about how mm-hmm. when I read scripture, I'm more inclined to read and then go to a footnote and then follow that footnote to another part of the book. I'm not often finding myself reading something straight through in a biblical text. I want to bounce around. Yeah. And, you know, in that way, I think it transcends the confines of what a book is. You know, it's a book that's made of many books, but it's a book that's made of things that transcend what a written word can capture. You know, if we look at the miraculous events, like these are things that are hard to describe in prosaic terms. So I think if we think of McLuhan as a religious writer and he's Mm -hmm. trying to describe the most profound communication shift ever, he's doing his best to do that with language. 
which is tough with words on a page, which is really complicated and with the expectations of his audience. So, you know, that's what made him so challenging, but also probably so smart. Describe that other book, The Medium is the Massage, that mm-hmm. he wrote. You told me you assigned it to your students recently, and mm-hmm. he was sort of trying to do this sort of form in a book, right? Yeah. Yeah. So The Medium is the Massage is a 1967, I almost call it as a work of book art. You know, it's not so much a, okay. a narrative text. It's not meant to be read front to back. It's He worked on it with Quentin Fury, who was a rather famous graphic designer of his time. And the idea was to take a lot of McLuhan's prior writings and pair them with images. And the images ranged from newly created things by Fiori to what we would consider almost like stock art being repurposed and redesigned Hmm. with image. So, for example, there's a a page in the book where there's it's a a full two page spread and it's an image from Andy Warhol's Exploding Plastic Inevitable show that was going on oh, around wow. that time, overlaid with a sentence from Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. Okay. okay. So, you know, if you look at that and you know nothing about McLuhan and you're like, well, what's going on here? But when you realize that McLuhan is a religious writer who's a Catholic, who's taking a lapsed Catholic's words and overlaying them on a Byzantine Catholic's pop art show, because Andy Warhol, of course, is one of the most religious artists that you can imagine, you know, it's that's the mix that he was going for. McLuhan wanted to throw things together that people didn't realize went together, but he found patterns and culture that others didn't. And this book allowed him to do that. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. There was a book that came out called The Medium and the Light, which was clips of his writings where he wrote about faith put together by his grandson, Eric. Uh, And that was the first book I had ever read on his Mm. faith in some of his own words. And I think you talk a lot about McLuhan saw his faith as all-encompassing. He wasn't saying like, oh, here's my Christian analysis. And here's mm-hmm. my not Christian analysis. He would have seen his faith as holistic. But I know you said that in a lot of his public appearances, didn't talk about his faith as much, but he did all these different connections. For McLuhan, mass media was a form of mass mm-hmm. or maybe the mass. When yeah. we communicate electronically, not only do we send information, we send ourselves. Mm-hmm. This extension, and that's a key word for McLuhan, And the corresponding receipt and perception creates a changed environment for all involved, a transformation of almost sacred power, playing with this mass media idea and the mass or the Eucharist or communion, you know, from a a Protestant perspective. Mm -hmm. How is he connecting all that? (laughs) Tell me about that. Yeah. So if he's someone who loves puns and wordplay, so he's someone who... His graduate dissertation was on 
Thomas Nash, who was a satirist, who was a pamphleteer, and he was somebody who very kind of like inappropriate kind of bawdy stuff, but, you know, McLuhan dove into it. And I think he made a, a claim that people who are satirists, they stretch the language. They show us really what language is all about because they push it to its limits. Mm. So you have someone like McLuhan who's trained in that way, who's intellectually interested in those things. And he realizes the word message sounds quite a lot like massage. And right. you know, when we think of a massage, you know, it's something where we're, we're handled carefully, you know, in the physical sense. And then in the language sense, we try to massage someone to believe in the thing that we do. So we're not acerbic or caustic towards them. We try to convert them, I guess, to use a McLuhan kind of concept. There you go. Sure. So we have the word massage. And then if you break that up, mass age. So it's an age in which we are talking to each other and mass in a group. And then there's also the Catholic concept of mass. So for McLuhan being a convert and of course a convert, you know, when we choose to become something, we oftentimes are very strong in that identity. You know, so converts in history oftentimes are quite devoted or pious or evangelizing in their faith. So you have a guy who is fascinated by mass, which is a ritual focused on both the community, the spiritual body, but also for a Catholic, the Eucharistic idea of the body and the blood of Christ. So you have all this stuff working with McLuhan and he figures, well, if as a Christian, he believes we're all one spiritual body and that when we communicate with each other, we're partaking of that, he's got a ready-made metaphor. And he wanted to figure out what does that mean for the secular world? And he knew okay. that if he talked to an audience on an NBC show in prime time and he used ostensibly Christian language exclusively, he might turn off a segment of the audience, perhaps even Christians who didn't want to be preached to at 8 p.m. on a Saturday night. But he recognized that there was a sort of spiritual underpinning to everything. And especially in the matter of communication, that's how he was able to open people's eyes to this without being, as you say, kind of directly religious in his language. I like how you're explaining that message, m- massage, mass age. Right? He's doing these little word plays. I also love the concept in here, and you're alluding to it, but of presence, right? When we talk about the Eucharist, when we talk about communion, we talk about the presence of Christ and hmm. how presence in time and space has changed when we are present to each other in different ways. You and I are being present on this podcast. I mean, right. recorded for people right. to listen later, but yeah. live here and present to each other in a certain way that's real. Mm-hmm. And so that... Like the idea of two people communicating from afar is something that McLuhan would see as the positive optimistic potential of what the digital or electronic era could achieve. And I think it's hard for us being enmeshed in this world to not recognize the wondrous moments of it, right? Like to be able to do those things that we take for granted, there are quite miraculous and in a way that McLuhan and certainly people of his generation could not have imagined. I want to ask you about that optimist or pessimist thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another big name that people think of when they think about a commenter on technology and then faith would be, you know, Jacques Ellul. And often, if you're doing broad strokes, people will call Jacques Ellul the pessimist and McLuhan Mm. an optimist. My question is, was McLuhan an optimist or a pessimist about the global village? 
I think he was a realist. He was a realist. Okay. I have this quote that I pulled from your book because I want people to realize why people call him a prophet. The things he was saying, especially about this global village concept that he coined, sounds so you know, this is the 1960s, but it sounds so internet-ish. You wrote, McLuhan predicted that when the globe becomes a single electronic, there it is, electronic computer with all its languages and cultures recorded on a single tribal drum, the fixed point of view of print culture becomes irrelevant and impossible, no matter how precious. In such an electronic world, any marginal area can become the center and marginal experiences can be had at any center. Sounds like the internet. It does. Sounds like the global village. He sounds positive maybe here. You say he's a realist. One corollary is to think of family. You know, people who are close to us in life, you know, we love them and they're with us all the time. And it's inevitable that we'll have disagreements by the nature of the volume of our interactions, right? If you go on a road trip with someone, that sooner or later there's going to be a a disagreement. (laughs) Where to eat, you know, things like that. So I think... He knew that the more we have of each other, even if it is a blessing to be able to interact with each other from afar, that sooner or later we'll learn things or find out things that will create some discord. So in the concept of the global village, he wanted to get us to realize inevitably this is going to happen. We're going to be in each other's lives. The technology of his time was pointing towards that. Yeah. So... If that's going to happen sooner or later, and I do believe he's a realist, then what are ways that we can find to recognize the potential discord that will happen and address it or prepare for it? Which is not a thing that people perhaps in their life are taught to do. And I'm thinking back to myself, and I'm from the generation, I got the free AOL CD in the mail, and then like I had <laughs> to tell you. My, you know, my sister... You can't go on the phone because I'm going to dial up on the internet. Like, so, you know, I was certainly never instructed on how to live online. And, you know, the people who I teach, you know, high school students and college students. So these are people who are most of them, except for a few graduate courses, I'm teaching, you know, people who are in their teens, late teens, early twenties. They also weren't really instructed on how to live online, which is a, even though they're even a younger generation than maybe you and I are. Exactly. And this is a huge part of all of our lives now, and it will remain a huge part of our lives. And why not find a way to be intentional about living in that space? Because McLuhan certainly wanted, as you mentioned before, in his private letters, he was more direct and, and he was nervous about where the world was going. But in public, as you mentioned earlier, he said, I make probes. I get people talking. I get people thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And that was his goal. Yeah. He's like, I'm not really giving you, this is not the right word, answers. I'm going to give you sort of probes, I guess, is the right look at things. Right. And there's probably a certain humility in him recognizing he didn't have it all figured out. A lot of the criticisms of McLuhan, besides what you say in terms of him being very challenging to read, a lot of the criticism was that he wasn't scholarly enough for the professors who read him. But What I think they misread was his intentions. You know, his intentions were, let me give you a lot of information for you to sift through, a lot of thoughts to consider, and for you to find that path yourself and to compare it with your own experience. And that's what his books do, and that's what his TV appearances and his radio appearances did. You know, the quote that you read from Global Village, you're absolutely correct. Like, it's eerie how accurate that is to a digital existence. 
Right. So the fact that he was that on point, I'm willing to listen to him for other stuff because, you know, if he figured that out, he must have figured out some other things too. I mean, it sounds like this year, any marginal yeah. area can become a center. Yep. And marginal experiences can be had at any center. And that's just sort of how the internet, as we know it even today, not even earlier, and it seems to be able to work. Or he writes about the computer. I had this other one that you put in here that mesmerized me. He says, the computer promises a means of instant translation of any code or language into any other code or language. And this sounds like Google Translate to me. The computer, in short, <laughs> promises by technology a Pentecostal condition of <laughs> universal understanding and unity. We're all speaking in tongues. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that he was able to do that. You're right. And I think that came from his usage of the word environment. A lot of people were focused on, they didn't like what was being on TV, the content. You know, they they were mad about, is it acceptable for families to watch? And he wanted them to say, you know, how about we step back and look at, you're sitting on a couch, you're looking at a screen. Information is being presented to you and it's affecting you. Let's step outside the thing. So the people who truly understand any structure of this world that we're in and any language element are people who think in a structural grammatical way about language. They think about what is the environment? How is the way that we're communicating? If I think about from a classroom perspective, you know, there's a big push, of course, to not have kids on phones in class. And certainly there's an understandable reason for that. Sure. But for me, it's like, well, okay, what are they desiring to encounter through that device? And why are they attracted to it? And we have to look to the environment beyond it rather than the thing itself. And that's a McLuhan-esque ideal. That sparks in me, the whole smartphones and the students and these things. At one point, McLuhan associates television with stained glass. Mm-hmm. I, I barely am getting what he was doing there. I do remember the old light on, light through designation. But I, if you remember it, maybe you could tell me what he meant. But I'm also curious, like, would that apply to smartphones? Hmm. That's a good question. I think it might, as you just kind of intimated, there's a concept with him where he sees television as being very different from film. So if you imagine yourself in a movie theater in, you know, past decades, past generations, and you have the projector kind of whirring behind you and it's projecting forward. So you're looking at a screen in a movie theater, but the image is coming from behind you, at least in McLuhan's time. Whereas the TV is projected at you. It's not coming from behind you. Yeah, so if you sure. imagine, you know, someone sitting in a church and they are looking up at the stained glass and the light is coming from behind it, it's not coming from behind them. It's almost like the glass is being projected at them. It's illuminating them in the same way as it's being illuminated. So for McLuhan, that was a very spiritual kind of experience for him. And if someone's a Christian, then they believe that God, and this is very much in the Jesuit Catholic language, but there's God in all things, you know? So if that's true, right, right. then, you know, that medium contains it. You know, the phone, McClellan would have a field day with the idea of like the extension of the phone. Like if I'm going to go in the other room now, my phone is going to be in my pocket. Like I'm not going to leave the phone in this room. So the phone is an extension of the self. 100%. Yep. And that way it yeah. could be dangerous, but also the phone is how I communicate with my family. The phone is how I get information. So it's not all bad. Exactly. So McLuhan, you know, with his realist kind of point of view, would say, what is the things that compel us to make that extension? And how can we wrap our spiritual kind of minds around that? So I would think that he would say the phone could ultimately have like a positive potential. Once again, once we recognize the environment around it first. 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, on our podcast, I talk quite a lot about uh, pastors that do too thin of a cultural analysis on technologies, mm-hmm. too thin a description, if we're going to use the language of anthropology in that sense. Phones have apps. Phones do different things. We can play Candy Crush or we can be mm-hmm. talking to our spouse. Phone is a misnomer at this point. Mm-hmm. At the end of your book, to sort of catch up to present day, because we t- you, mm-hmm. you were writing a lot about McLuhan's life, and there's so much more that people will want to jump in and read about this. So I definitely encourage mm-hmm. people to pick this up because you're just talking through his some just really detailed and interesting parts of his life and his faith. At the end of the book, you catch up to present day and COVID and the things we've experienced the last couple of years and talking about doing mass online even. And you came up with some principles thinking about with you as a Catholic about how do you apply McLuhan's thought and your faith to the digital era now. But you wind up writing that we must reimagine the sacraments in a virtual world. I actually wrote an op-ed for Christianity Today on the same thing, but it was from a very sort of Protestant perspective. I'm curious for you, what does it mean to reimagine the sacraments in a virtual world? I think it presented to us the logical extension of having the technology that we have. So up until that point, we didn't have to go there technologically to have exclusively online services or masses. Right. But COVID, I think COVID was certainly here in New Jersey as of March, 2020, no more mass. There was no more in-person mass. It was close to Patterson diocese, just, you know, shut it down. So we reached that point of logical extension where we had to be online. So what it presented to us was what it felt like to celebrate in that way. And I think we went through times of it felt like a novel thing to do and then times where it felt inadequate and there was an extreme longing for the physicality of in-person celebration. So for me, if I reimagine the sacraments, I think the ultimate would be a, a, a hybrid of the two, a recognition that for a segment of the population the mass is not accessible to them, in-person mass. You know, people for a variety of reasons and situations in their life are not able to be there. And they are ministered to in in other ways traditionally, but to not have this other option, you know, now that we see that it could exist, is something that we should consider. While at the same time recognizing that a lot of people are going to spend a lot of hours doing things, you know, that, that are coming out of their own good graces, people who are affiliated with churches do things for low pay or free, you know, it's a volunteer world. So (laughs) if that's true, you know, I feel some measure of guilt in a way saying that we should have hybrid services and knowing, but there's got to be a way that people of faith can figure out to be virtually celebrating with each other and also be in person so that we can find the best of these media, so to speak. And I feel like that would really benefit us and it would use this medium of the digital world in a, in a Christ-like way. Do you picture, there are a lot of very low church evangelical churches that actually had done communion online for years, even before mm-hmm. COVID. And then you're sort of your middle Protestant, your Presbyterians or your Lutherans were definitely much more hesitant at doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe if we're going to put Catholic on one side over here and your Anglicans right next to that. <laughs> And your right. Baptist over here, right. which sort of very different views. And so your theology affected how you saw the technology of doing that. Mm-hmm. But do you picture from a Catholic perspective an ability to do like actual Eucharist online? You know, yeah. that's 
There's a lot of theological debate about that. And I think that might be the place where they ultimately stop short to label it Eucharistic in the literal sense. I know that in Catholic churches, there was a Eucharistic prayer that was said, and it was meant to be said at the same time by everyone. And I'll admit that it felt profound to imagine being distant from someone and saying the same thing and to have a consciousness, so to speak, collectively focused on that moment. I mean, isn't that what the best version of the global village is, is that people coming together in a distant way to feel close. Yeah. So I don't know if the Catholic Church will ever, in a Eucharistic sense, get all the way, but yeah. I'm hoping that they embrace the, the possibilities of a symbolic communion. Yeah, yeah. Well, this book, Nick, is just really great. I think you clearly have gone through and rescoured the different sources <laughs> of Marshall McLuhan to really talk about his faith and the way that affected his thought. And so I'm really grateful for the book and the conversation. Thank you. The book is Digital Communion, Marshall McLuhan's Spiritual Vision for a Virtual Age. Really fun to talk about it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Okay, Adam, that was the interview with Nick Rapatrizone. What did you think of, well, one, don't you just want to talk about Marshall McLuhan all the time now? <laughs> you know, always, always with you, just to nerd out. I'm sure Nick was really excited to have someone as much of a fanboy as you are <laughs> interviewing him. Uh, <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I like I used him a lot for my original like, theology work, yeah. but he has clearly read almost everything that Marshall yeah. McLuhan not only wrote, but he went back and read his private letters, read his that's personal cool. correspondence. And that's where a lot where he was bringing up more of his Christianity, it seemed like, and his faith. And so, that, I mean, Nick now, I feel like, is an expert for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no so it's really interesting. Well, yeah. And the Catholic faith angle is fascinating. I didn't realize that he was a convert to Catholicism and that he had a nominal faith prior to that. Maybe yeah, a nominal from Baptist, Catholic. all the Baptists. Yeah, I guess I figured he <laughs> yeah. was maybe a nominal right, Catholic right. prior to that. But no, like Nick said, he was an earnest Catholic who had converted because he believed it. And I think that's just really cool and inspiring. We didn't bring this up in the interview. Apparently, he used to tell his friends or maybe other professors that he was not only a Catholic, but he was the worst kind of Catholic, which was <laughs> an adult convert. And that was a funny joke for him. So. <laughs> yeah. And just to hear who his inspirations were, G.K. Chesterton, Gerard Manley Hopkins, James Joyce, William Butler yeah. Yeats. You know, I've read Chesterton. He feels a little bit like McLuhan in the sense that he's a bit exasperating to me. <laughs> I've read Chesterton and I feel frustrated reading him and I felt similarly frustrated reading McLuhan. So there's a resonance there. I love Gerard Manley Hopkins. God's grandeur is a great poem. Oh, cool. I didn't know that well at all. So I'm glad you did. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And I think that poem in particular was a huge inspiration to Eugene Peterson. I think a number of Eugene Peterson's book titles come from Gerard Manley Hopkins' poems. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. Uh, I haven't read James Joyce. Oh, one doesn't read James Joyce. One absorbs James Joyce. It's, <laughs> it's... <laughs> That's, yeah, a buddy just tweeted yesterday that he was 22% of his way through Ulysses and was losing heart. And I was like, that sounds about right. So yeah. I haven't even... No, losing your heart and losing your... Mind, mind actually is how that works 
<laughs> yeah. Right. So anyways, yeah, interesting that he has some of these inspirations and that he felt like the faith that he grew up with wasn't intellectually anchored. It sounded almost like his shift to Catholicism was a bit of a deconstruction of his faith and a return to something that felt more in keeping with his own intellectualism. Well, I wonder if that if he was thinking about that in the 50s, the later return of a lot of evangelicals to thinking about more Anglican faith or mm -hmm. uh, Catholic, because there's a richer historical tradition, and he went to right. Cambridge. And I mean, I grew up in a little bit of that with the evangelicalism that was fervent in sharing the gospel, but didn't dive into a lot of the intellectual answers very well. And right. I, I, maybe I relate to that. Maybe McLuhan was an early version of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think yesterday, Chris, you texted me a quote from the book that Nick had written. He says, for McLuhan, mass media was a form of mass, mass being the Catholic church service. And I was like, oh, he's deep in it. And <laughs> that theme definitely came through in the conversation. And I found that to be very interesting. This notion that McLuhan believed that there's this spiritual body that is the church, and that when we communicate with each other, we're partaking in that communion, that spiritual communion with one another, and that it provided this metaphor for thinking about what was happening through radio and television and telegraph, that there was this global communion or this almost, he talks about it as a secular communion, on, on some level. He says, what does yeah. it mean that we have yeah. this electronic communication that creates this secular spiritual communion? And that challenges me. How far can you take that metaphor and where does the metaphor break down is the question for me. We have this idea from scripture of being joined together with Christ through the Eucharist, through communion, through the bread and the wine, that though we are many people, we are united in this one loaf of bread. And then McLuhan is taking that as a metaphor and porting it over into the digital age, the electronic age, and saying, hey, here's a metaphor for how we can think about what's happening digitally. But every metaphor breaks down. And I want to think about where does that metaphor break down? And for me, going back to your text that you sent me, the quote of the book, it says, when we communicate electronically, not only do we send information, we send ourselves. And so that idea of even just an avatar in the metaverse or that text that hmm. you sent me, you're symbolically representing yourself in some way. When I open up a text from you, it has your image. It has a profile picture, per se. And to what degree are we sending ourselves? And we have to get into measures of degrees because... It's not entirely you. It's a portion of you. It's a fleeting thought in your mind at that moment. And in the religious communion, we think there is a holisticness to it. But in electronic communication and electronic communion, it seems like it's a partial communication or partial communion. And I'm trying to figure out, yeah, where does that metaphor break down a little huh. bit? Huh. No, that's interesting. Uh, you're saying it's sort of fragmentary, whereas with communion or in the Eucharist, or we want to say that that's a total or something. Right. But maybe it's not, not to be theologically sacrilegious, but I do think we think the body of blood in Christ is not the same, we would not say. And of course, this depends on the theological tradition, <laughs> but it was not the same as the actual 
presence of Christ. Now, of course, we want to insist it's the actual presence of Christ, but right. we are not saying it is the same as it will be when the kingdom of God fully comes, that, that somehow I interact with God or Jesus in a way that's different than me just partaking of body mm-hmm. and blood. And so mm-hmm. it is a fragment in that <laughs> sense or a thinner sense. I was also thinking, as you just said, with the text message being fragment of me, Marshall McLuhan's famous for that medium is the message, and he was really interested in not just the content, like I sent you a quote from McLuhan about mm-hmm, mass, mm-hmm. but I'm making me think of, like, I have another friend right now that I've actually felt sad because I felt really out of touch with him over the last year, and we really haven't been able to connect very much for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons. And we were just texting each other yesterday a little bit for the really the first time in quite a while, mm-hmm. and... I was thinking relationally about how I was feeling disappointed in this relationship. And it's a close friendship, so we had even gotten to the point where it was like, we're all busy, how are we supposed to do this? And I thought to myself, it doesn't even matter what you say, just text me something. Mm -hmm. I found myself thinking that relationally, because that would be present. So almost the content of the text message almost wouldn't matter. Like, oh, I noticed the weather today, or taking my kids to the store. (laughs) But the presence of being a little bit communicative would be the relational aspect of that. Right. And you probably weren't looking for that analogy, but that connects to me with everything that we were just saying about the Eucharist being this, not just the content, but the very presence of communicating us. Maybe that's a good reason to do it very regularly, the presence of Mm -hmm. God. Uh, Yeah. And I think, you know, to me, it illuminates the ways that we take a symbol of their presence. It doesn't even matter what they say, as long as they say something that symbolizes it represents something about them but for you you're attaching that meaning in a way that they may not be that they might just be i'm just going to shoot this text off because i feel guilty you're like man this person really wanted to connect with me and so you're attaching some degree of meaning and it may be commensurate with what they're intending but the point is both of you have an intention and a perception of what that symbol what that action means and as i think about the religious communion moment we have a sense of what the bread and the wine symbolize and what they mean and we also believe that god himself jesus himself has a meaning that he has given to it that he has demonstrated and explained to us, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me, this is my blood, and that God himself has declared, this is what it means. Yeah, a present intent from God based in also a past reality. Right. Right, and so when we move into that secular communion space, there is a relevant aspect of what does each party mean by the symbols that they're exchanging, And collectively, what do we mean? So when I'm on Zoom with someone, we are trusting that intention and that meaning is generally a shared representation of what we believe about what's happening on Zoom. I believe that that person is representing who they are fairly accurately. Or if it's a text message, I trust that there is some correspondence to their person. And in the way that your friend is texting you, you trust that it's representing. And so... When I think about that secular communion and its correspondence to the religious communion, I'm thinking about what does God say about what is happening here when people are communicating with one another? 
there's something we believe about what's happening in how we're representing ourselves and how we're interpreting each other. What might God say about how we're representing ourselves in that thin way or in that partial way or in that complete way? And how does that inform the meaning that we understand to be in that secular communication that's happening? And I don't have an answer to that, but to me, it helps me clarify what the question is, I think. Jesus has said, this is my body, this is my blood. And so I have a sense of what he means by the bread and the wine. And I think we have to work out from there and from other passages of scripture, other philosophical ideas to get to what do the symbols of text messaging and Zoom calls mean? And what is the collective global community agree is true about these symbols that we're exchanging as we represent ourselves and communicate to one another? And that I don't think has been decided. I think there's a lot of disagreement and negotiation and conflict over what these things mean. Well, and also with a communion in Eucharist. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the symbol of unity has a lot of disagreement. <laughs> I've even mindful of you using the word symbol over and over, which definitely a portion of Christianity and certainly Catholics would yeah. not like that word mm. with that. But I mean, I know you're just trying to represent what we're talking about. And right. so it's, it's fraught. It, the other very more Catholic perspective, reflecting on something you said right at the beginning, is back to the mass media idea. I really think McLuhan is doing that. Everyone at Onceness. He watches TV and he's watching the Walter Cronkite era of news. And my mom used to describe this of everyone sitting down in the evening and all watching almost the same thing. Right. And it being a national consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than the way we experience TV, even through the cable TV era. And then YouTube as a flash mosaic of everything asynchronous all the time, you know. Now, yeah. I don't know if McLuhan would use that analogy with the Catholic sense. You know, I have some good friends in the city that are Catholics, really faithful Catholics, and yeah. they, more than Protestants, feel more comfortable if they're in another city, they're going to go to a church and go to Eucharist, right? And go to the Mass right. to make sure they're participating in the one world mass for that weekend right? because right. that's really important. And most Protestants don't think that way as much, yeah. right? Like it's yeah. just your local church. And for my Catholic friends, that's really important for them to be like, no, I'm part of the one world thing. I'm part mm -hmm. of the Walter Cronkite. We're all doing this together <laughs> media form. Mm -hmm. And so I can really see why McLuhan's Catholicism plus his version of TV at that time went together for him. Yeah. That synchronicity. <laughs> yeah, and that's really helpful to think about how it might be different today in an asynchronous world and the ways that the unity, the sense of spiritual oneness is broken in the forms of the internet that we have today. And we see that in the ways national conversations and international conversations are happening. There's fragmentation all over the place. Because there's both a lack of unity and a lack of agreement around what these symbols mean. And when I say symbols, I mean the pixels and the text messages right. in our thinking. So, yeah, but Nick did allude to that profound sense of being united as we're all praying this prayer together, not being able to take communion, but praying this. And he said to have our consciousness collectively focused on this moment. Hmm. I think that's beautiful. I think there is something about this unity in the sense of we're all focused on the same thing. I mean, this is kind of a sad analogy, but in moments of national tragedy, 
If you think back to 9-11 and everyone watching a couple news channels, seeing the tragedy unfold, but we're all conscious and attentive to the same thing at the same time. And to some degree, the pandemic did the same thing. And those are sad analogies, but I think there are positive ones. I think the Christmas spirit has in the past been something of that, where everyone's mindful of the same kinds of things around the same moment. And that Christmas spirit is this positive notion of goodwill and gift giving and generosity. And the church seeks to celebrate something at Easter like that. And so the church is seeking to endow the world with positive moments where we're all conscious of the same thing, but people don't adhere to the Christian faith or whatever. And so that becomes fragmented. And so these negative examples are the ones that come to mind most frequently. So I say all that just as examples of this collective consciousness focused on that one moment that gathers us together. Communion does that. Church celebrations do that. Tragedies do that. But they all gather our awareness and attention to one place and and focus our hearts in a way that allow us to feel connected to other people in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's awesome. So Marshall McLuhan is still one of my favorites, will be a scholar that I I will still track for a long time. And I love even more that I know more about his faith now. Um, Yeah, absolutely. If folks are interested in reading more Marshall McLuhan, he is difficult. I definitely recommend (laughs) Nick's book, Digital Communion, Marshall McLuhan, Spiritual Vision for a Virtual Age. There are a couple chapters that are more technical, but I think anyone that wants to put their head on it will really like it. Yeah. And there's another book that I mentioned in the interview called The Medium and the Light, Reflections on Religion, that was put out posthumously by Marshall McLuhan's son. And it had some other thoughts that he had on Vatican II mm-hmm. and some other stuff like that. So if that's further reading. And there's also a biography of Marshall McLuhan by Douglas Copeland, one of my favorite novel authors. So I just wanted to read more of the life story. It's actually pretty well done. So that's another recommendation. <laughs> but yeah, thanks to Nick Repatrizone for doing the interview with us. Really, yeah. really great to have him yeah chris i noticed listening to it that you asked nick an additional question but this one is for our patreon supporters right Oh, the secret bonus question. Yes, I did. We have people supporting us with small, regular monthly amounts on Patreon, which has been huge. We are so grateful. Thank you, guys. And yes, yes, I asked Nick a question that will only be uploaded there. I asked him actually how Marshall McLuhan's worldview and maybe all his books and everything he thought would be different if he had not converted to be a Christian when he was 26. So he answers that. But yes, that's for the people that are supporting us on the site. If anyone else is interested, in joining up and really influencing and helping the work that we're doing, they can find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. Cool. All right, Chris, it's time for Vice or Virtue. Mosaics. <laughs> we, we talked a lot about mosaics, didn't we? Yeah, like yeah. McLuhan's talking like a mosaic or something. That's actually yeah. a funny... Wait, are we an art podcast or a technology podcast? Yes. <laughs> NCSA Mosaic. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have no idea what you just said. The first web browser. I was thinking there was a web browser. It was the first web browser. Is that right? 
NCSA? The National Center for Supercomputing Applications was at University of Illinois, where I went to school. Really? And I can show you the building where they essentially put together the first web browser. It was the precursor to Netscape, and it was called Mosaic. I vaguely and remember so that. That's sort of a fun, random connection to <laughs> McLuhan talking like a mosaic. I bet he would have loved the name of that. I'm not even sure why it was named like that. But so I like the web, so I, that's really good. Also, but I mean, I think of mosaics as being one of the oldest gosh, art forms in forever. I mean, we see them all over Chicago. There's a great mosaic artist that does them on schools in the city. Huh. But I remember them in Pompeii when I was back in Italy a long time ago visiting the city that sheds a lot of light on biblical cities. And huh. there are old tile mosaics and huh. floors. It's one of the coolest things. You're like, oh my gosh, someone 2,000 years ago made that piece of art, somehow set it in that stone, and it stayed all this time. From ancient Rome to the web browser to Marshall McLuhan's <laughs> spitballing, I'm very pro-mosaic virtue. <laughs> Virtue. Yeah, the one fact I know about mosaics is that each little tile is called a tesserae. And oh, nice. That's really all I know about mosaics. Tesserae. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I don't know of another use of that term. So it's kind of a singular term in and of itself. But were mosaics often broken pottery or taken from leftovers or shattered things? Yeah, or glass. Yeah. I love that image of taking broken things and making beautiful things out of them. And I mean, even churches here in Chicago and around the world are using mosaics in various ways to create art. But yeah, I would definitely say it's a virtue. They're beautiful. They're broken. <laughs> they're just like human beings. Well, thanks for the nerdy excursion, Adam, coming with me over to Marshall McLuhan land. And thanks to Nick Rapachazone for taking us there. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.